Hello, I'm Nicole. I'm the second year studying linguistics, and we're doing the passage from Judges chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6. It's on your handout. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, wait, got it, got it now? All right. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who served them out of the hands of these raiders, saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they were not listen they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted them prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these nations to, those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountain from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, good job with all the nations. Uh, that they had to conquer. So you've, hopefully you've worked out that today we're kicking off a new series on the book of Judges. 
and uh, we're going to be going through it for the next five weeks or so. We won't get all the way through, but we'll come back to it uh, later, probably next year. Uh, but the book of Judges is one of my favourite books in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's the kind of book that you would make a movie out of, or a series of movies. Uh, admittedly, the movies would probably be R-rated. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty violent. Uh, but there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of stuff that's happening. And it raises a lot of questions for us as well about what it's doing in the Bible and what its function is. But the question I wanted to kick us off today with was to ask you, what is the biggest problem in your life? What is the greatest difficulty that you are facing? Uh, Perhaps after a study break that turned out to be more of a break from study than a break for study, the biggest problem you're facing is assignments and the looming sense of exams and a whole stack of lectures that you swore you were going to catch up on over the study break, but it turns out that you didn't. Maybe the biggest problem that you face is the people around you. Maybe it's your friends, your classmates, maybe even your own family. Maybe they are the ones who make life difficult for you. Uh, Or your biggest problem might be something more internal. You might have some kind of physical illness, some sort of physical disability. You might have some kind of mental health problem might be some kind of internal struggle that you face. Or maybe the biggest problem that you face that seems to surround you is a society that seems to be running as far and as fast away from God as it can. Is it the rise of Islam that's your biggest problem? Is it the rise of atheism and secularism? Is it the extreme right or the extreme left? For us, we might have lots of problems, but for Israel, it was very clear what their greatest problem was. Their biggest problem seemed to be the people in the land that they were trying to conquer. It's the land of Canaan, which is on the uh, eastern side of the Mediterranean. It's sort of situated between Egypt and Syria in the north. It's kind of where modern-day Israel is, more or less. And God had promised Israel the land of Canaan. He promised it to them right back in Genesis chapter 15 when he made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And sure enough... Uh, Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, to take them into Canaan, the promised land. But when Israel got there, they balked. They sent spies in to check it out, 12 spies. 
And they came back with the report that, yes, this is a fantastic land. This is a great land. It's flowing with milk and honey. There's huge bunches of grapes and the land is fertile. It's not like Egypt where you've got to irrigate it and all that kind of stuff. The water just comes down out of the sky and plants grow. It's fantastic. The only downside is that it's full of Canaanites. And they're big. And they're scary. And we don't think we can take them. Israel actually failed to trust God to do what he said. And so God sends them back out, away from the land of Canaan, to wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation has died off. And he brings them back to the land of Canaan. And this time they've learnt their lesson. They trust God and under the leadership of Joshua, they enter the land. But at Joshua's death, there's still quite a lot of the land of Canaan that they haven't conquered. And that is where we are at the start of the book of Judges. But before we get into the details of Judges, we probably need to have a little excursus. Uh, We need to deal with what, for us, is one of the glaring problems of the book of Judges. And, in fact, the whole of the Old Testament up to this point. Uh, Namely, how is it that God can go and promise the land of Canaan to Israel when there are Canaanites already in it? How can he be okay with Israel destroying the local inhabitants? Not only okay with it, but actually commanding it. How can God be okay with this kind of genocide? I reckon that's a good question, and we ought to feel the weight of that, because this is, this is not an insignificant thing that is happening here. This is the destruction of a whole group of people. The killing of them or the pushing of them out of the land. How is God okay with that? Because doesn't it feel like sort of Israel pushing the Palestinians out in modern times? Or the sort of ethnic cleansing that we're seeing in Iraq with, uh, the, with ISIS pushing out the Yazidi people? How is this okay? But when you start to dig into it, you discover that God commands this not because he's evil, but because he's good and the Canaanites are evil. We've tended to absorb our culture's sort of baseline belief that everyone is more or less okay. You know, everyone's basically good, we're all just trying to get along. Um, everyone's basically a nice person. And that's just our kind of general operating assumption. And then occasionally, we run into instances of real evil. We think, hooray, we've had the First World War, it's the war to end all wars, everything's good, everyone's going to be nice and civilised again. And then the greatest civilization on earth at the time, Germany, the pinnacle of cultural achievement becomes a nation ruled by the Nazis, shuttling people into ovens, gassing them with poison gas, killing people by the millions. 
and we reel back and we, we don't quite know what to do with it. We don't know what to do in the face of real evil. Or we think that with the collapse of the Soviet Union that we'll enter a whole new world order where it'll all be rainbows and puppy dogs from here on in. That everything's just going to be great. And then we come across Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. We're actually a profoundly naive people. Astonishingly short in memory. We keep forgetting that people can be evil. We keep forgetting that whole nations can be evil. And the Canaanites were that kind of nation. They were that kind of people. See, God had warned Israel in Deuteronomy 12.31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Now, there's a whole period of biblical scholarship where the preeminent scholars didn't believe this. They said, this is just Israelite propaganda. Surely no one would do anything like that. No one would sacrifice their own children. Just didn't seem the thing that British or German theologians would do. And so, therefore, no one could possibly have done it. But writing about the Carthaginians, who actually had the same culture as the Canaanites. They were from the same group of people. They worshipped the same gods. Uh, This is what historian Josephine Quinn says. This is something dismissed as black propaganda because in modern times, people just didn't want to believe it. But when you pull together all the evidence, archaeological, epigraphic and literary, it is overwhelming and we believe conclusive. They did kill their children. And on the evidence of the inscriptions, not just as an offering for future favours, but fulfilling a promise that had already been made. The historian Shelby Brown writes that they would place the child in the arms of a bronze idol, the hands of the statue extended over a brazier into which the child fell once the flames had caused the limbs to contract and its mouth to open. The child was alive and conscious when it was burned. These are not good people. The wonder is not that God commanded them to be destroyed, but that he gave them so long to repent. He gave them over 400 years to change, yet they never did. So that's where we are at the start of the book of Judges. God has commanded Israel to invade Canaan and to kill or drive out the local inhabitants. And in Judges, it all starts out pretty well. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Joshua has died, but the Israelites do the right thing. They ask of the Lord, who of us uh, is to go to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answers, Judah shall go up. I've given the land into their hands. And sure enough, Judah, uh, one of the premier tribes of Israel, goes up to fight. And the Lord gives the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and Judah win the battle. Then Judah go and attack Jerusalem and they win that too. They conquer the whole surrounding region. They conquer the Philistine cities of Gaza, Ashkelon and Ekron 
And everything is looking great for Israel. Everything is going according to plan. But then, in chapter 1, verse 19, we hit a snag. Yes, Judah managed to take possession of the hill country, but they cannot take possession of the plains because the people on the plains have iron chariots. Now, that may not seem like much to us, but chariots back then were basically the tanks of today. If you had a chariot, you could just blow through infantry like they were nothing. Israel can't conquer them. And then the Benjamites, another Israelite tribe, they can't manage to dislodge Jerusalem's inhabitants. Judah had just conquered them, but Benjamin can't push them out. Manasseh, they failed to drive out all the people in the region given to them. And what had started out so successfully just ends up getting bogged down in this stalemate where neither side can push the other out. And there's just ongoing conflict and fighting and death. Neither side is capable of winning. Now, those of us who are Australian ought to be familiar with that sort of thing. After all, that is what we celebrated yesterday, isn't it? The same sort of thing. Anzac Day commemorates the attempted invasion of the Ottoman Empire by Australian and New Zealand Army Corps as part of the Allied attack on the Central Powers. See, we landed in Gallipoli uh, on the 25th of April, 1915, and the aim was to secure access for the Allies into the Black Sea so that they could support Russia and so that they could capture Constantinople. And then by doing that, they'd take the whole Ottoman Empire out of the war and Germany would lose one of its key allies. But of course, the invasion failed. Like the Canaanites, the Turks didn't take particularly kindly to being invaded and they resisted fairly ferociously. The whole campaign got bogged down and it ended up in a stalemate that cost about 45,000 Allied lives and a lot more on the Turkish side before they were finally evacuated eight months later. It was a failed invasion, uh, a bit like uh, Israel's invasion of Canaan. But for Israel, there was no evacuation. There was no sneaking away in the middle of the night to safety. Because this is the land that God promised them and there is nowhere else to go. They can't go back to Egypt. They can't go back to the desert. What are they going to do? They've got nowhere else to go, but they are just bogged down because their enemies are too strong. It's like a Gallipoli campaign that just goes on and on and on. Except... That's not really what's going on. See, the external enemies are not Israel's biggest problem. Now have a look at chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles there. You can have a look at chapter 1, verse 28, where we read that when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. You think, hang on a minute. Now, I can cope with before that they weren't strong enough, that the other guys had iron chariots and there were too many of them or something like that. And that's why Israel couldn't push them out. But actually we're told that when Israel becomes strong enough, they still don't push them out. 
The strength of the Canaanites is not Israel's biggest problem. Because Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, all the northern tribes, when they're strong enough, they fail to drive out the Canaanites. And the southern tribes don't come and help them either. Israel fail not because their enemies are so strong, but because Israel is disobedient. They allow the Canaanites to live alongside them. You might think, isn't that lovely? Just, you know, little nations getting on together, you know, friendly people. Isn't this like a model of peaceful coexistence? One big happy family. Except part of the family are sacrificing their children in the fire and the other part of the family are starting to think that maybe that's not such a bad idea after all. That is not a good kind of tolerance. That's like being tolerant of Pol Pot or Stalin or Hitler. That is not good. That's actually evil. And God will not put up with it. Chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And you think, hooray! You know, so it was going badly. Uh, but, you know, God has rebuked Israel, and Israel's repented, and everything's back on track. It's all hunky-dory again. But it's not. Verse 10 of chapter 2, uh, this is in your handouts, we're told that after the whole generation, that is the whole generation that had entered the land with Joshua, uh, the, land, the generation that had repented of not driving out the Canaanites, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord their God, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, 
the people return to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And this is Israel's circle of life. This is not a happy, feel-good Disney song where everyone goes out with a little tear in their eye at the end of the movie. No, this is a disastrous cycle that just goes on and on through the book of Judges. Israel turns from the Lord. They follow the gods of those around them. The Lord hands them over to their enemies and Israel is in distress. So the Lord raises up judges to save them. But then Israel turns away from the Lord. They follow the gods of those around them. The Lord hands them over to their enemies. Israel is in distress. So the Lord raises up judges to save them. But then Israel turn away from the Lord and it just goes on and on and on through the whole book of Judges. Israel failed to be the nation that God commanded them to be. Why? Is it because of the nations around them? Partly. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is their own sin. Their own rebellious hearts. They just keep on rebelling against God. And although God raises up saviours to rescue them, the saviours keep dying. And Israel goes back to their sin. So what does all this have to say to us? Well, I think the key thing for us to remember in looking at the book of Judges is that Judges, like the whole Old Testament is a shadow. It's a shadow that if you follow it long enough, you eventually hit the reality. And the reality is Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills the book of Judges. See, Judges shows us what we are like as humans, left to ourselves. That we are not capable of dealing with our enemies. And more particularly, we're not capable of dealing with our sin. We cannot change our own hearts. We can't change what we like. We just like what we like. And what we like is not what God likes. We can't change our hearts to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And we can't change them to love our neighbours as ourselves. But God can. And he does. He's actually dealt with our enemies by dealing with our sin. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code, uh, the written charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Lord has actually dealt with our sin. He's dealt with the thing that keeps turning us away from him. He has dealt with it through the cross of Christ. Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve. And in doing that... 
He's actually stripped our enemies of their power. Because, as Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our real enemies aren't flesh and blood. Uh, Our real enemies aren't those who despise us. They're not our social enemies or our political enemies. They're not even Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Because the worst those enemies can do is kill us. And that's not really a threat if you're a Christian. All that does is send you to be with Jesus faster. But our real enemy, our real enemy is Satan. Because he can accuse us of sin before God. And he can rightly demand our punishment. But not anymore. Not anymore he can't. Because what we were too weak to do, too trapped and ensnared in our own sin, Jesus did for us. He took the punishment that we deserve. And in doing that, he stripped Satan of his power. Satan is just a prosecuting attorney. All he has is the ability to call upon the judge to do justice. But the judge has already done justice. The sin has already been punished in Jesus. And so Satan is stripped of his power. Our real enemy is conquered and thrown out of the heavenly courtroom because he no longer has a case. He cannot rightly accuse us. He cannot demand that God punish us. Because God has already taken our punishment on himself through his son on the cross. But more than that, the father has raised the son to life, never to die again. So, unlike the judges who come to save Israel, but can only ever achieve a temporary salvation because they just keep dying. Well, Jesus, he always lives to save. More than that even, God the Father, by raising God the Son, enables him to pour out God the Holy Spirit into our hearts, changing them, transforming them, so that we are no longer like Israel in their rebellion. No longer always veering away from God, always veering away from love for him and love for our neighbour. And instead, turning us around so that we're now heading in the direction that God wants. Of love for him, of love for those around us. So that sin, that problem with our hearts, that was actually our biggest problem. I don't know what you thought of when you thought about what your biggest problem is, whether it's mental or physical health, whether it's the people around you, whether you fear the direction that our society might be heading in. Those things, they're just temporary problems. They are not the real enemy. No, the biggest problem, the thing that was ruining our lives and destining us for destruction, was sin. But the whole book of Judges points us to what God has done in Jesus. He's defeated our enemies by dealing with our sin through a judge who lives forever to save. 
And we're going to spend the rest of, uh, almost the rest of the semester, the next few weeks, uh, exploring the book of Judges. And uh, one of the great things about Judges is that as you delve into it and you look at the different judges who come along, they are, they're all terribly flawed. But they point towards a judge who is not flawed, a judge who is able to save forever. We're going to dig into it and we're going to see lots more about Jesus because they shine light on all different aspects of him and how he is so much better than any of them. We're going to look at this incredibly violent and graphic book. But we're going to end up seeing something wonderful because we're going to see Jesus and it's going to be great. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not leave evil unpunished but brings it to an end. Father, thank you that you have not brought us to an end in our evil, but have sent your Son to pay the price that we might go free. And you have poured out your Holy Spirit so that we may no longer be people who are driven by evil, but who rejoice in the good, who love you and who love others. Father, thank you for Jesus. Amen.